Section 25 of The Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 11. Retrospect of the Times of Transition from the Roman Empire to the European States of the Middle Ages. The history of the five centuries from the end of the fifth to the end of the tenth is the history of the efforts of the new nations of the West after organization, improvement, and power. During this period, the Teutonic races found themselves under entirely new conditions. It had not been new to them to conquer or to meet other races. They had already, in what we call their barbarous state, definite social usages and a kind of political organization. But for the first time, they found themselves in close and permanent contact with an older and more perfect civil order and a new religion. They found themselves, in their ignorance and inexperience, in their eager curiosity and vigorous freshness of life, in contact with Roman learning and Roman art, in some parts with Roman institutions and Roman laws. And they found themselves under the spell of the mightiest, the tenderest, and most wonderful of religions. Thus all that had been the familiar course of life during centuries of wandering was changed. Wild as they still were, they settled. They became lords of lands and houses. They began to learn and to know. They began to feel themselves becoming a commonwealth and a state. And by the end of the tenth century, the process in its broad and essential points was accomplished. The outlines of the new world that was to be had become distinctly and permanently laid down. It had been doubtful whether it was to be Goths or Franks who were to be at the head of the new state of things, to give it its tone, to direct and control it. It had been the Franks and not the Goths. It had been doubtful whether Catholic or Arianism was to be the religion of the West. Arianism had disappeared and had left perhaps too easy a victory to the Catholic Church. Again, it had been doubtful whether the new nations could stand the shock of barbarian pressure outside and behind them, whether Europe might not be, like Africa and Asia, a prey to the Saracens, whether the Northmen from the sea and the Huns and Slavs from the deserts might not desolate and sweep away the homes which Frank and Goth and Anglo-Saxon had made for themselves. The deluge had been stayed, not without loss, but for good and all. The Saracen had maimed, wounded Christendom in one of its finest kingdoms. He had spoilt, though not finally destroyed, the hopes of Spain. He long continued to annoy and threaten the shores of Italy, to penetrate even the passes of the Alps. But the Saracen had been arrested forever by Charles Martel at Poitiers and Narbonne, by Charles the Great at the Ebro. The Northmen, the Slavs, even the Huns or Magyars had been drawn into civilization which they had disturbed but could not overthrow. The imperfect civilization of the time had proved itself strong enough not only to check them but to react upon them. It had been doubtful whether the New World were not to be an extension of Germany from the Rhine over the whole west and south to the Atlantic and Mediterranean. Further, it seemed at one time uncertain whether German speech 
and German law were not to prevail in Gaul and Italy, as they had prevailed in Britain, supplanting the older languages and laws, or driving them out into the wastes or the mountains. Whether a great German reproduction of the Roman Empire, with its twin capitals of Aachen and Rome, were not to be supreme in the world. But this was not to be. The strength of the older society and of the races in possession had reasserted itself. Germany was indeed to be a great and mighty nation, but it was not to absorb the world. The Frank Empire of Charles the Great was too loosely compacted to hold together as he had created it. It broke up and was reconstituted in a different and very contracted shape. The Holy Roman Empire of the Saxon, Otto the Great, the empire as it was to continue until the beginning of this century, often a very important but ambiguous and uncertain element in the polity of Christendom. The lands where the Romans had been strong were once more to show the influence of their imperishable language and thought. Italy was once more Italy and not Lombardy, but its destiny to be kingless except with the mock title of a foreign and often hostile ruler had declared itself. It was no longer doubtful that Western France, so long the battleground between Latin and German influences, was to be Latin and not German. It had finally shaken itself loose from Germany. It took a king out of its own great chieftains and rejected the half-Teutonic line of Charles the Great. It was to grow and become great under the kings of Paris and not under the kings of Laon, much less of Aachen. The great Norse settlement on the Seine had become thoroughly Latin. The combination of astuteness and practical good sense with the old adventurousness and daring of their blood, which was to make the Normans seek crowns in England, in Italy, and in the East, had already shown itself in the remarkable line of the Dukes of Normandy. And by the end of the 10th century, England had taken its shape and established its internal unity. Angles of the East, North, and Midland, Saxons of the West and South, even the intrusive Norse settlers of the Danish districts had become permanently bound together under the kings of the line of Egbert, Alfred, Edward the Elder, Athelstan, Edgar. They had become that English folk and English kin who were soon twice to be made subjects of foreign conquest and to be ruled by lines of foreign kings, but who were to turn their conquerors, even Normans, in a generation or two, into Englishmen. Finally, with the year 999, with Gerbert of Auvergne, the austere Cluniac monk, the most learned man of his time, mathematician, theologian, supposed wizard, magician, tutor of a Roman emperor and of a king of France, ecclesiastical intriguer and ecclesiastical victim, the stout opponent, the stout asserter of the claims of the Roman see, placed in it as a reforming pope by the title of Sylvester II, through the influence of the Roman emperor Otto III, a new line of popes begins. We have left behind the popes who cringed to the Carolingian princes when they were strong and threatened them when they were weak. We have left behind the creatures of profligate women and their associates. 
there are still some forty years to come of the licentious or simoniacal nominees of the counts of Tusculum, but the German emperors on the one hand, the monks of Cluny on the other, had already embraced strongly the idea of what the Pope ought to be, and this idea, which was to give to the Popedom its modern importance, was on the eve of being realized. Thus the present sketch has been brought down to the Middle Ages. In 962, Otto the Great was crowned emperor at Rome, and the medieval empire began. In 975 was the end of the powerful and peaceful reign of Edgar, who left a united England, which his son Ethelred was to lose through misgovernment, and the stranger was to conquer and spoil, but which neither could destroy or disintegrate. In 987, Hugh Capet became king of France. In 995 ended the long reign of fifty years of Richard, Duke of Normandy, the reign which had seen such great revolutions, in which Normandy had thrown its sword into the balance between Germany and France, and had determined the victory of the Dukes of Paris, a reign which left Normandy the most vigorous province of Gaul, full of intellectual activity and ambition. We are not far from the Crusades. The seeds of feudalism have been thickly sown and have taken deep root. We are not far from the strife of investitures, the eventful quarrel between Pope and Emperor, Gregory the Seventh and Henry the Fourth. We are not far from the beginning of the scholastic philosophy, from Berengarius and Lanfranc, Anselm and Abelard. We are not far from those massy and solemn churches in Normandy, Germany, France, and England, in which the architecture of the Middle Ages took its beginning, and which stand the enduring monuments of what the new nations had grown to be, of the ideas of power, strength, and grandeur, which had been developed among them, and to which they sought to give expression. End of section 25. Recording by Pamela Nagami, M.D., in Encino, California, January 2021. End of the Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church.